very much. Morning, everybody. How are you? Good. Um, we've been in Canada for 27 years or so, so I hope the Australian accent is not quite as bad as it used to be. But it's good to see you all this morning and welcome to our continuing series on the Psalms. Uh, I'm sure many of us are here today because we've actually genuinely met Jesus. Uh, that might sound odd to people who've not had the same experience, but we know he's real. And we couldn't deny our personal experience without denying our very selves, right? But this is no private thing. Even the People's Republic of China knows that the modern world's freedoms and creativity are profoundly the product of the gospel. This is for the world at large. Our universal convictions that genuine change is actually possible, that you learn about reality primarily through our senses, that everyone has equal dignity, that the body is not the enemy, one's place in the world has not to do with birth but gifts, and love and compassion are central. All these uniquely derive from the gospel of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you've thought about that, but I hope you've realized to what degree the gospel has already won. The more you learn about the ancient world, the more you realize how profoundly Christian Canada is, even if certain people don't realize that. So can I say, far from being on the wrong side of history, Jesus made our history possible. He could not be more relevant. But that's what makes today's psalm even more challenging. How can all this be true, and yet we sometimes feel as though God has abandoned us? So welcome, and I need to get my clicker working here, to Psalm 22. Isn't this amazing? Okay. All that engineering background coming into play with the clicker. Uh, no other psalm matches its extraordinary lows and highs, moving from bleak depths to astonishing vindication. It's also the psalm with which Jesus ends. And if it's not quoted by Paul, it aptly describes the arc of his life. So if Psalm 22 was the experience of David, of Jesus and of Paul, perhaps we ought not be surprised if it's our experience as well. Psalm 22 is from that first book of the Psalms, that's Psalm 1 to 41, which primarily concerns David, Israel's paradigmatic king, chosen by the Lord himself. For all of David's failings, God nevertheless describes him as a man after God's own heart. Now, that should be encouraging for many of us, all too familiar with our own failings, as it were. Now, this entire collection begins with Psalm 1, stark contrast between the righteous person who flourishes and the wicked one who perishes and is blown away like chaff, which are exactly the opposites we see in Psalm 22. What's the point of beginning with Psalm 1? Well, David has to choose to fear the Lord, delight in his law, and meditate on it day and night. Now, uh, Katie and I once had a very intelligent tricolour corgi. Black coat, white chest, wonderful. He loved his bone. He'd fling it, he'd stalk it, he'd pounce on it, he'd gnaw at it for hours. And as Eugene Peterson once said, so to the Psalms. If we want to get at their marrow, they need to be chewed on, gnawed at, growled over again and again. They're not for speed reading, which alas is what we have to do this morning, right? 25 minutes in a psalm. Well, good luck. Here we go. Now, there's a lot of material here. 
Please don't try to read the fine text. Just look at the big colours, okay? Uh, So we're going to have to strap in and here we go. But to begin, Psalm 2 consists of three genres. Nearly two-thirds is lament, that's in blue. And do notice that, you probably know this, but over half the Psalms are blues tunes, right? Oh, when my baby left me. No, no. The psalmist understands that life is not always great. Now, we hardly do this, and it's not because we don't suffer. Perhaps we feel it's inappropriate for worship or somehow vaguely dishonouring to God to talk about the mess we're going through. But can I suggest that laments are exactly what we should bring to God, precisely because they assume that he can do something about it. It's actually deeply honouring to him. Psalm 22 also includes two very brief prayers. You can see them in green up there. And notice they're massively outweighed by the lament. That might surprise us too. Shouldn't prayer outweigh lament? Apparently not. And all of this is followed by praise and thanksgiving, and that's the red section. Now, just in terms of the main themes, to give us some overall picture... First of all, Psalm 22 begins with David's anguished cry of being forsaken, both by God and by his fellow humans. And he concludes with a very short prayer for help, verse 11. Then, in excruciating detail, David describes his troubles, both without, he's surrounded by terrifying enemies, and within, his own body is failing. As I get older, I know more of the second one. This unit too concludes with a prayer, but now just slightly longer. And next, completely out of the blue, pardon the pun, comes an astonishing turnaround. God has answered, beginning in verse 21b, which leads to a thanksgiving, first by David, then by the congregation, which then extends to all Israel, the nations, the dead, and even those as yet unborn. Wow. What we haven't included is the title. It's omitted by a number of English translations, but the Hebrew text has at least 116 of them, so we can't probably uh, properly ignore it. The question is, to what does the deer of the dawn refer? What does it mean? Well, some people think it might be a tune. Or it might be there to evoke the image of a defenceless deer having survived the terrors of the night now standing on a mountaintop against the edge of a bright dawn. And if that's what's going on, I think it beautifully captures the sense of this psalm. Now, a bit of technical stuff to get us going. We won't do it all the way through, but just to give you a feel of how we come at the psalms. The opening pair of lines express the heart of David's terrible and confounding situation. He feels God has abandoned him. Whatever else, God's presence is key. Uh, You may well remember that Karl Barth once said, the reason Europeans stopped going to church was because they no longer found God there. It's a danger for us too, I think. We can get so caught up in causes, theological debates, etc., that we forget why we are actually here, and that is to encounter God. So even in his suffering, this is where David begins. My God! And notice it's emphatically doubled and then repeated in the second line. That's three times in all. 
This, I think, suggests it's not an, oh God, if you are real, please show me and I'll serve you forever. That's fine. I know people who've found the Lord that way. That's not what's going on here, I don't think. This way of speaking reflects that long-term intimate relationship of Psalm 1 that defines David's identity. Apparently, even someone with a deep and abiding relationship with God and who is saturated in Scripture can still experience God's apparent absence. This is what gives rise to David's three-part appeal for an explanation. And notice each line increases the intensity. It's not just abandonment. You're a million miles from delivering me, and all this in spite of my anguish groaning. And notice too the change in tense from past tense of have abandoned. This is now intensified into the present. You are now currently so far away. Now the second line, whoops, somehow went back to the start there. Pressed the wrong button, do forgive me. Tricky stuff. Here we go. Thanks for your patience. The second line, in repeating the opening, my God, keeps that tension front and center. There's no easy getting away from this. And it then expands on that last element, anguished groaning, and through another set of three contrasting pairs, expands on it. Notice that first phrase, day and night. Where have you seen that before? It's exactly the language of Psalm 1. I think it's a deliberate echo. I've been meditating on you day and night, and day and night you're not responding to me. I'm crying out to you. And that brings us to the second tension. But you do not answer, and so I cannot find rest. And what's that doing? It's emphasizing God's responsibility. I've done my bit. What about you? And that's then distilled in the essence in the, to its essence in the third uh, part, pair, pardon me, Whatever else, the one thing David needs is an answer. So we spent a little bit of time there, but you can see in just a few lines how the tension has been ramped up unbearably. So if you've ever had that experience of feeling that God's absent, David knows all about this. In fact, there's probably nothing more terrible than God's silence in the midst of inescapable and exhausting suffering. And I suspect some of us know exactly what David's talking about. Now, what's particularly unsettling is that God never explains why. In my tradition, we had an old song, by and by we'll know all about it, by and by we'll understand why. Anyone ever heard of that old song? No? Okay, maybe unique to my tradition. I'm not sure that's true. I can't see anywhere in Scripture where God ever commits to having to explain himself to us. Now, for some folks, this is intolerable. But their easy answer, oh, David must have sinned, simply won't work. If David had sinned, we'd expect to find confession and repentance as we do in Psalms 32, 38, or 51. But there's not a hint anywhere in this psalm that David has done anything wrong. Jesus, who quotes it, certainly hadn't. And yet here David is on the verge of perishing and being blown away like chaff. Perhaps then, the point of Psalm 22 is less about God giving a reason to us than the nature of David's and our response to inexplicable suffering and feeling as though God's far away. Now where does David begin? 
in verse 3, but you are holy. Now, that's surprising. I'm not sure many of us would have gone there. Holiness in the midst of suffering. But I think David knows that suffering can be so overwhelming that it becomes our identity. Especially in a self-centered world of identity politics. Furthermore, our attempts to deal with pain can lead to all manner of dark, destructive places. Substance abuse, abuse of others, rage, shutting down, self-obsession, the list goes on. Centering on God's holiness pulls us up short. As overwhelming as suffering can be, it is neither the center nor what a holy God ever intended. He alone is perfect in all his ways. He alone is to be exalted. He alone the center of all things. And similarly, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, where does he start? Also with God's holiness. Hallowed be your name. To use that language with which I grew up. David has a choice, and so do we. And as he already knows from Psalm 1, meditating on God's holiness is, to use some old language again, the only anchor that will keep his soul. Now, if you know Israel's history, the combination of feeling forsaken, of needing deliverance, of crying out, and of God's holiness comes from but one place, the Exodus. The great and defining moment of Israel's past where God revealed his power, his name, and his compassionate mercy, which is exactly where David, having long meditated on God's Torah, goes. Here too, David deliberately decenters himself. In going back to his forebears, he reminds himself that he stands in a bigger, older history. In other words, it's not all about him. And that's what suffering can do. Make it all about me. And in that history, it is God who is enthroned either on the praises of Israel or who enthroned is the praise of Israel. Either way, God reigns at the center. There would be no Israel without him. After all, it was this God who in Psalm 2 also appointed David. Him to deny this would be to deny him very self, his very self. That's why we get this emphatic primary position, sorry about that technical language again, of the three prepositional phrases. Oh my goodness, sounds like a grammar class, doesn't it? But do notice that emphasis. In you they trusted. To you they cried. And again, in you they trusted. See the focus? From that long past experience, David is reminded that the right response in suffering and apparent abandonment is to trust a holy God. It's so important it gets mentioned three times. Now do notice, crucially, that his forebear's response was not to understand. The Greek tradition emphasized human rationality. But really? Who among us can pretend to understand life, let alone in a sea of suffering? And what was the result in Athens? Tiny islands of crushing elitism surrounded by a bog of largely ignored masses with no hope of change. People proudly talk about Greek democracy. Oh, really? 
30,000 male citizens on the backs of a quarter of a million others. And that's democracy? I don't think so. Not about understanding. Nor does David seek to blame, which is what our culture seems to be doing more and more these days. Blaming is a dead end. As we've sung several times this morning, if a holy God were to mark sin, who among us would stand? And you know, blaming doesn't really change anything. Instead, Israel cried out, and God heard, and God saved. And they were not put to shame. Now that reference to shame might also be unexpected, but that's exactly what Israel's long slavery was about. Degrading, dehumanizing, devastating. That's what suffering does. I watched my mother die very slowly of cancer. It was long, dehumanizing, and degrading. Someone once described cancer as a filthy disease. That would fit my experience. But that's not what God originally intended for anyone. And how do I know? Because of Jesus. If anything characterized him, it was that he healed everyone who came to him. Now notice too that David's realigning his compass to trusting a holy God does not mean he launches into a faith confession. I'm believing, no negative word, everything's good, no problem. Not at all. It's precisely because a holy God is trustworthy that David's forebears cried out in their groaning. Trusting does not mean denying our pain. On the contrary, because pain, shame and abandonment are so destabilizing that they must be handled rightly. There's all the difference in the world between David's pain being all about him and bringing his pain transparently, even graphically, to a holy God. The first one, all about him, is simply idolatry. And that will divide, alienate, oppress and destroy. The second is an act of genuine worship, which, as we will see, leads to life. Trusting means then that nothing is actually held back. Just like David's forebears were initially shamed, so now in verse 6 is he. He is a worm. Now, nothing against worms. As you know, we have a garden plot outside and my wife loves them. But here they're associated with decay, death and decomposition. And that's in contrast to what? Being a human. Where does that come from? Because in Psalm 8, what do you know about humans? Crowned with glory and honour, a little lower than God. David knows his current decay is not what God intended for any of us. Now that mention of human, I think, leads him in verse 7 to his next complaint. Whereas God might be absent and silent, the humans around him are anything but. They are all too present and all too mouthy. They scorn, despise, mock, make mouths, shake their heads, and with a perverse viciousness, take the language of encouragement and twist it into a humiliating jeer. Now, even worse, whoops, let's go back here, I skipped one there. Uh, this is the first time the name Yahweh, the Lord, appears. That's at the bottom of the slide in front of you. And it's on the lips of these inhuman thugs. Why is this striking? Because Lord, as you know, is the name especially associated with the Exodus. Uniquely revealed to Israel, God's son in whom he delighted. And it directly informed God's promise to David in Psalm 2. The Lord said to me, you are my son, that I have forgotten you. 
This is not just putting the knife in, it's twisting it. So, the Lord delights in you, eh? Right. So commit yourself to him and he will deliver as if. That's the mockery. Now, it's important to see that this is not primarily an attack on Yahweh, but on David. If God delights in you, why are you suffering? And how often do we hear that? The implication is, you're suffering because he doesn't delight in you, and nor will he deliver you. Putting it that way, though, and we see this really is a deeply offensive attack on Yahweh. What these folks do not understand, and sometimes neither do we, is that bad things do happen to good people and terrible things to genuinely godly ones, and we do not know why. The mockers think we earn God's mercy and compassion, but if they paid attention to the Exodus, they'd know that's not the case at all. A holy God shows compassion because that's who he is. That's what the Exodus taught Israel, and that's why the Lord is Israel's praise. So wisely, David doesn't bother to respond to the mockers, and may I suggest neither should we. What matters is not their opinion, but the Lord's. And so in verses 9 through 10, David speaks directly to his Lord. Now the language here is a bit jarring, but their world was earthier maybe than ours. They'd seen the baby emerge from between its mother's legs to be placed helpless upon her belly. I have to say, the first time I saw this, I just shamelessly wept. There's something overwhelming about that moment. David understands that birth cannot be reduced to mere nature. It's an amazing gift behind which stands the creator of all things. So whatever David's faults, and notice they're of no importance in this psalm, he can say to God, from the helplessness of my birth, I've always been dependent on you. Now this can be read in two ways. First, as a statement of David's long faithfulness, I've always been dependent, gold star for me, da-da-da. Uh, or second, and I think more likely, it's an admission of his vulnerable creatureliness from the very beginning. As a frail human being, you know that we're but dust. I've always been completely dependent on you. And you know what? As we've seen with COVID, it doesn't take a lot to humble our pretensions to self-sufficiency. And so at the end of this first unit, verse 11, he has his first short prayer. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. And you see that? The critical thing, as in the opening stanza, is again God's presence. It's the heart of the Exodus. You see this when God offers Israel the land but refuses to go up with them. Moses declines. If your presence does not go up with us, please do not send us from here. No presence, no deal. There's no substitute, folks, for the presence of God. Not finely worded sermons, not wonderful music, not buildings, not even good coffee. There's only one who can help, and oh boy, does David need it. And if you look at the next section, my goodness, there's a lot of suffering here. Now, it can be quite unsettling, but the older you get, the more you realize just how much suffering there is in the world. There's lots of beauty for sure, but still. Well, Psalm 22 confronts this head on. And in the next 10 verses, 12 to 18, right, they have a range of metaphors to focus on two things, external and internal, David's viciously terrifying enemies, and his utterly washed out body. 
Now, we don't tend to think in terms of bulls, lions, and dogs, but they were fearful parts of David's world. There are carvings of writhing people caught in the lion's jaws. Maybe think of the movie of the same name to get the, the kind of emotional uh, connection here. And even today, some of us feel the hair rise on the back of our necks when we get too close to a powerfully built Rottweiler, right? Kind of know that primal <laughs> instinctive reaction. Uh, if you want to sense some of this emotion, imagine being in a North Korean prison. David's so far gone that his enemies, in anticipation of his soon demise, are already dividing up even his clothes. His last shreds of dignity are being taken from him, and inwardly he's got nothing left. Think of lying motionless on your bed with a debilitating migraine, where even the slightest chink of light or movement risks shooting agony. Or the daily stomach-churning cycle of chemotherapy and its never-ending unwellness. Hard to be strong in situations like that. And so what we see is all that an exhausted David can do in verses 19 through 21 is offer a slightly longer prayer. O Lord, do not be far away. My help come quickly, deliver and save. Now as prayers go, it's hardly the most memorable, right? But maybe that's the point. The prayer's efficacy is not determined by its length or impressive rhetoric, nor by David's own majesty, which is now completely in tatters. The prayer's power resides instead and always in the one to whom it is directed, the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. So turning his mocker's jeer on its head, David, for the first time in verse 19, himself invokes the Lord. That great covenant name of the Exodus, the I am who I am. The one who cares for the oppressed. I am the one who will be present, but in whatsoever form I choose to be present, which is another way of rendering that text. And it's the very same Lord who anointed him king. Now, why this change from God to Lord? And we're not told. But given the context, I wonder if it's partly the result of David being completely upfront with God. He's not trying to be spiritual or strong, nor does he do this arrogantly or as God's equal, but as a genuinely dependent, fragile son. And do remember, it was as Lord that God called Israel and David's son. I wonder then, if David's being transparently honest is in itself an extraordinary act of trust. What if David came to realize in this moment of patent candor that in spite of how he felt, God had never really been absent at all? However that might be, in verse 21, and without any account of what transpired, everything is suddenly turned around. From the horns of the wild ox, you have answered me. Now, if you're following along in one of your more careful translations, say the NRSV, they will have rescued. And it does make more sense. You get rescued from the horns, not answered. But the fact remains the Hebrew text has answered. And do remember, answering was the issue from the very beginning. And why does that matter? Well, if it had been rescued, then David is giving thanks for a deliverance that he's already experienced. The focus is on his situation. But answered is relational. And it emphasizes trusting a holy God's faithfulness regardless of whether he's actually been delivered. He now knows, regardless of how he feels, 
that since God has answered, his deliverance is assured. Commentators have long remarked on the absence of any particular answer, but I wonder if that misses the point. The only content we have is David's decentering himself and focusing on the Lord's faithful holiness at the Exodus. And as a result of that, he imitates their cry. What if his choice to focus on who a holy God really is, is what matters most in all of this? Now, just like the Exodus, it might not mean immediate deliverance. But deliverance will surely come. And that leads finally in verses 22 to 31 uh, into a cascade of ever-widening circles of praise. Given the psalm's beginning, we're not surprised that he's restored and set on God's holy hill. And he addresses God, I will tell of your name. And what is that name if not the Lord, Yahweh, the I Am? I will praise you. You have answered me. And do note how often the Lord now appears in the rest of this psalm. Verses 23 to 24 include all Jacob and Israel. So whereas humans despised and abhorred him, Yahweh the Lord did not. And neither good friends will he despise you, no matter how others might have treated you. What matters is not their response, but the Lord's. Now, what does David mean in verse 25 at the end here? That he will now pay his vows. There's nothing in the psalm about any deal with God. Save me and rescue me and I will do such and such. None of that's going on. I think what's happening here is now restored, David can fulfill his obligations by giving God what was already rightfully his. David's being answered is not that he can go and do his own thing and nor is it for us. Now, in this very last section, the text is quite difficult. And on this translation, uh, I'm going to go with the marginal, the dispossessed, and the poor. They get to eat their fill. That's very much a part of what it means to be in relationship with Yahweh. A satisfying meal in the Lord's presence is the pinnacle of worship. What a great, wonderful image. Which is why there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb. And it won't be a little bit of bread and a little sip of juice, as good as that might be. So don't over-spiritualize the Christian life. We are emphatically not disembodied souls. And as they eat before the Lord, they lift their glasses. May your hearts live forever, they say. The ancient version of l'chaim, to life. Now there's good reason, I think, why Jesus' first sign in John is to do what? Turn water into wine. As John's gospel well understands, it's always been about life and life eternal. Then the circle expands even further. All the families of the nations will worship him, all leading in his presence and lifting their glasses. And how so? Because as the creator, the one behind every birth, right? every beginning of a human life, all dominion belongs to the Lord. And still we're not done. Even the dead will bow down. Does this vindication extend even to the grave and beyond? Future generations will be told, and they too will proclaim the Lord's deliverance to those who are not yet born. And the proclamation is stunningly simple. He has done it. It's that basic, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now hopefully we can see why this psalm is without peer. It's an extraordinary reversal. There's nothing like it in the entire Psalter. And the reason it's in the collection seems clear. Regardless of how it might have looked to outsiders, the Lord was faithful, and the deliverance when it came was astonishing. 
So it's hardly surprising then that Psalm 22 is followed by mathematicians among us. 22 plus 1 equals the justly famous Psalm 23. You see, David's the Lord is my shepherd is no cheap confession. It was hard won through even Psalm 22's valley of the shadow of death. He knew what it was to have a table prepared even in the presence of his enemies. Well, what does this mean for us today as we come to the end of our time together? At least in terms of me sharing with you. Well, I'm sure some of you have been thinking, this sounds a lot like Jesus. Uh, Mark Chagall, piece of art there in front of you. And yes, the gospel writers seem well aware of the similarities and want us to see them. Now because of this, some people see Psalm 22 as a messianic prophecy. Unfortunately, it's never quite cited that way in the New Testament. But it is striking that Jesus, as great David's greatest son, cites Psalm 22's opening line at the climactic end of his life. Now what Jesus intended is hotly debated. The skies have been black for three hours, and as he drinks the cup of God's wrath, he appears abandoned and is viciously mocked. For some, the father even turns his face away. And we see the fearful autonomy, the fearful cost, I should say, of our sinful autonomy, a searing rend, if you like, in the eternal fellowship of the Trinity. Now, none of this should be downplayed, even if some of it goes considerably beyond where Scripture itself actually goes. Okay? Nevertheless, but hang on, think about this for a minute. Jesus has consistently predicted this moment and always in confident declaration of his resurrection. God knows that Jesus' innocent death is an act of unparalleled obedience. And the one scriptural parallel, Amos 8, describes the darkness of God's judgment as like the mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. What if the darkness is not about God's turning his face away at all, but actually an affirmation that what Jesus is going through marks him out as God's only son? Now what's fascinating is one onlooker's response to Jesus' cry, my God, my God. Crucified beneath a very Davidic king of the Jews and mocked by bystanders for the very same, this individual hears this citation as an expectation of the same astounding deliverance of which Psalm 22 speaks. And in their day, Elijah was the agent of the Lord's salvation. So what if Jesus himself immersed in Scripture wanted us to know that in spite of how it looked, his messianic death was the ultimate expression of David's trust in Psalm 22 which would likewise also be followed by the same utterly extraordinary reversal. Now, unlike David, Jesus actually dies. But do notice, it's not the cross that kills him. Pilate's stunned to hear of Jesus' bizarrely rapid death. No, 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 the cross doesn't kill Jesus. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down. He's the one who gives up his life. And immediately, a Roman... One of the nations proclaims, this was the Son of God. And then, of course, there's the resurrection with all four accounts of it written in Greek. Jesus' vindication from death is now proclaimed to the ends of the earth. And generations of whom David could not have dreamed now celebrate as we do. He has done it, 
That's right, folks. We're actually in this psalm. Now, Paul understands this so deeply that it shapes his life. In Corinthians, he confronts a view of spirituality that, that owes more to idolatrous wisdom than to God. Just like Jesus, though appearing weak, afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down, Paul is neither crushed, despairing, forsaken, or destroyed. And why? Because his being given over to death is solely so that the life of Jesus can clearly be seen. And all of this to the glory of a holy God. And in the sure and certain hope of the life of the world to come. Dear friends, do not think it strange that some, Psalm 22 sometimes happens to us. Those who tell us if we have enough faith and are sinless, all will be riches and seamless health, they lie. If Psalm 22 happened to David, to Jesus and to Paul, there's no reason why it cannot happen to us. And like Jesus and Paul, we may well first taste death. But never forget that the valley is not the end. As our Lord Jesus Christ himself said, yes, in the world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. May God bless his word to us. Thank you for listening to the Willoughby Church Sermon Podcast. The Willoughby Church Podcast Network also has podcasts about discipleship, the Heidelberg Catechism, and even a podcast hosted by some of the youth. You can find out more about the Willoughby Church Podcast Network by going to willoughbychurch.com.